from 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Ross Gallagher. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. We've got a great one for you. We're covering Crowdcube and Octopus partner to open up VCTX, so expanding access to these uh, investments for different types of customers. Apple finally launches PayLater after some technical issues, but still ahead of the regulation. And Elon Musk swaps the Twitter bird with a Dogecoin meme. I mean, bonkers. We'll get into all this and much more in today's jam-packed news show. But first, a few brief messages, so don't go anywhere. This episode is brought to you by Global Processing Services. At Global Processing Services, the expert partner in issuer processing, they take your security seriously. Their game-changing fraud advantage tool powered by FeatureSpace assesses fraud risks in milliseconds and uses AI and machine learning to constantly adapt to stay ahead of emerging fraud threats. With their array of available fraud solutions at your fingertips, you can feel secure with GPS as your payment processing partner. Find out more at www.globalprocessing.com forward slash fraud management. Buying a home is the biggest and most significant purchase most people make in their lifetime. And it doesn't matter where in the world you're buying, the process is rarely easy. In our latest report, experts from our 11FS Ventures team look at why the home buying process is broken, how we can fix it, and the massive commercial opportunity it presents for banks and fintechs. Download your free copy at 11FS.com slash homebuying. That's 11FS.com slash homebuying. Welcome to episode 725 of Fintech Insider. I'm Ross Gallagher, Venture Lead at 11FS, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some great guests to break down the week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. So firstly, it's a welcome return to Fintech Insider for Jonathan Keeling, Chief Growth Officer at Crowdcube. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you. I know, exciting week for you guys. We'll get into that in a little bit later, but maybe you can just uh, start out by giving our audience a little bit about you and maybe a little bit about Crowdcube. Yeah, great. Thanks, Ross. Um, pleasure to be back. My name's Jonathan. I'm uh, CGO at Crowdcube. We're the world's largest equity crowdfunding platform. Um, I'm responsible for our marketing function and also our campaigns team who deliver the businesses that we raise for on platform. We do about 250 deals a year, and that culminates in a big portfolio. And uh, that team I also look after. We've got about 950 million of securities under management and have raised over one and a half billion on platform for businesses like Revolut, Monzo, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Cowboy, Curve, what three words. And they've gone on to, you know, complete their life cycle and sell on to blue chips like JP Morgan, ABM Bev, et cetera. Hopefully that's a good little snapshot. And um, thanks again for having me. I look forward to chatting through the news. Yeah, and some real success stories there, Jonathan, as well. So, so thanks for that and great to have you on. Making a welcome return to Fintech Insider, we also have Jason McCullough, publisher at Fintech Business Weekly. Jason, great to see you back. Maybe again, let's just start with a little bit of background uh, on yourself and, and Fintech Business Weekly. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, great to be here. Uh, for listeners that aren't familiar, I've uh, worked in the fintech and banking space for 
13, 14 years now, cross-marketing and product management roles. Currently write and publish FinTech Business Weekly, which is a once-a-week newsletter doing in-depth analysis on trends and stories in banking, FinTech, and crypto. Common themes include banking as a service, embedded finance, compliance, regulation, BNPL, which we'll be talking about a little bit later. Uh, If folks want to learn more or subscribe, they can find it at fintechbusinessweekly.com. Nice. Thanks, Jason. All All the hot topics covered there as well, which is great. Um, and then finally, we have yet another return to FinTech Insider for Polly Jean Harrison, Features Editor at the FinTech Times. So Polly, listen, welcome back. Great to have you again. Let's let's go with the trend. Let's uh, get a little bit of background on you and a little bit on uh, the FinTech Times. Brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, I'm thrilled to be back uh, again. Uh, so the FinTech Times, we are a multimedia news outlet centered all around FinTech, obviously, and the FinTech world. Uh, I've been there now for nearly three years, which feels like so much time, but also not very much time at all, which is absolutely insane. Uh, But we chronicle all the latest developments uh, in the fintech space, you know, paytech, regtech, banking transformation, open banking, and April is our diversity and inclusion theme month, which is a very exciting month for us. So if anyone is interested in learning more about diversity and inclusion within the fintech space, definitely check us out at thefintechtimes.com. Nice. Love that. Yeah, it just shows you how quick the market's moving, right? That three years feels probably like 10 or 12. Excellent. Okay, let's uh, let's jump in then. Let's get into the news. Our first story comes from tech.eu uh, with the headline, Crowdcube and Octopus Investments are opening up retail investments in a new partnership. So Crowdcube and Octopus Investments, they're looking to open up these retail investments in a new partnership by creating a solution that lowers the minimum level of investment into venture capital trusts or VCTs to £500. The typical minimum investment into a VCT has been between £3,000 and £5,000. This has meant many retail investors have been excluded from investing in these companies listed on the London Stock Exchange. And under the terms of the partnership, Crowdcube makes Octopus Investment VCTs available for investment via the Crowdcube platform to include their flagship fund. So, Jonathan, look, I think it'd be remiss of me to start with anyone else uh, on this story. And obviously, great to have you on to talk about it. Um, Maybe you can just give us a little bit of the background, some of the context around how the how the partnership came together. Yeah, sure, would love to. And it's a super exciting one for us, this. Um, obviously, ourselves and Octopus have both been key players in the venture ecosystem in the UK for some time. Octopus clearly having many other strings to their bow and us just simply focusing on the um, equity investment side for retail. So this is, comes as a sort of first um additional uh asset class for us to offer up to our members the the partnership was feels really mutually beneficial um it was a coming together for both of us and our side we're we're keen to see how we can offer up those additional suite of products as we grow and also move into sort of later stage offerings with our member base and then for octopus i guess they're wanting to see how they can target a new and growing demographic of, um, you know, wealthy, younger individuals, frankly, um, to try and market their VCT products, which have really exploded over the last sort of 10, 15 years since um, they were brought on the scene. Yeah, yeah. And and sort of, I suppose, very clear opportunities on both sides, like you said, right? So the best type of partnership. I guess... Um, there's a very notable sort of technical term in there, isn't there? Sort of venture capital trust. So maybe just for our listeners who might not be familiar, can you give us a little back background, maybe a little bit of an explainer? Yeah, I mean, 
best best coming from someone at Octopus, I can give you the uh, the once over. Um, but VCTs are investment companies. They're listed on the uh, London Stock Exchange, and they allow retail investors to invest in um, a fund and offer a diversified portfolio for early stage businesses. They're managed by these trusts and. Since they were introduced by the UK government, there's been plenty of different funds that operate these these trusts, um, and they've really grown in popularity. So they launched in 1995. From there, they had about 160 million that year invested up to where we are today. Last year, there was over 1.12 billion raised into 45 separate VCTs. Um, Apollo and uh, Titan are the two largest in the UK, both operate and managed by Octopus. And they tend to all have different sort of investing thesis and verticals where they focus on. Apollo is a good example, focused on B2B deep tech businesses specifically. So it allows retail investors looking to get exposure on a more diversified level into you know a, a, a fund approached investment. They're tax efficient, so you can uh, receive 30% income tax relief upon investment. They're also free of capital gains and interesting that they need to be held for at least five years. So some of those larger products have almost uh, positioned themselves as a quasi sort of savings product in a way. They're much lower rate of return in comparison to what we offer with almost bang or bust type propositions in the startup private investment world, they're very much more seen as um, a way to to invest and hold in a in a in a tax efficient vehicle. I really like that you um, set our expectations quite low there, and then gave really a truly comprehensive, excellent <laughs> overview. So thank you for a few that. notes. And and Jonathan, I guess obviously you know the, the, so that that sort of minimum now is coming down right from sort of between three and and five thousand to to sort of five hundred. How much is this going to sort of, I suppose, open up access, expand access to people that previously weren't able to? Yeah, I think look, I've been at CrowdKeep for seven years now, and I joined when we were invited onto panels alongside VCs, and we weren't really accepted in the green room afterwards, right? Like there was the core group, and crowdfunding was very much on the side. And the idea of access for retail has taken a long time to educate the market on. And we need to ensure that this stuff is delivered with the appropriate risk warnings and 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 sensible approach. But we are regulated by the FCA, we're regulated by the CMNB in, in Europe to put forward these type of uh, instruments to um, a, a lower level. Um, it's been an interesting couple of weeks. So we opened up the wait list. We've had over two and a half thousand people sign up on the wait list, it, registering between the 500 and 3000 threshold. So as you mentioned, Ross, the current sort of minimum threshold is around 3000, some of them are 5000. And we've had over 5 million of expressed interest at that level. We're probably looking to launch our first VCT offering over the next couple of quarters to which we'll be building that waitlist in typical crowdfunding style um, before opening that up. An example of one which we're targeting is this, uh, um, is the Apollo Fund, which is a 40 million raise. So I think conservatively, we'd love to you know, raise, let's say 10% of that fund through retail. And the users that we're seeing really, who are really interested in this are the the CrowdCube power users, I guess, those that have built up portfolios over time are starting to see returns through exits in the CrowdCube portfolio, and then looking to just really 
drive some more diversification into into what they're doing. So we shall see, but it's been an interesting couple of weeks. Yeah, and that rollout makes sense, right? It being sort of phased and managed and all of that sort of stuff, right? Um, that, that makes a lot of sense as well in the context of the sort of risk and everything that you mentioned. Um, Jonathan, thank you so much for the, all of the background and the context and the explainers. That was terrific. Um, Polly, what was, what was your sort of, what are your thoughts? What was your reaction to this story? So I think whenever you see sort of like a product or a service that is kind of breaking down barriers, I'm always a big fan of it. Like I think just accessibility to financial services in whatever that means, in whatever way that we see that, I think can only ever be a good thing. And I think, you know, retail investors have been locked out of private company access for a very long time. And for something like this to help break down those barriers and help get people accessing you know, to these different types of investments, I think is is fantastic. I think obviously, as Jonathan was saying, we do need to have a lot of education around like risk, I think, because obviously the my understanding is that these do bring a lot more risk than perhaps some other investment offerings. But I think if you've got the risk appetite and you're new to the VCT asset class and want to do, like, you know, invest in some, you know, different diverse offerings, this this is a really great opportunity. Um, and, you know, I think as long as we do manage that risk and as long as people are sensible about it, we can get some, you know, investors having some fantastic high returns, which at the end of the day, isn't that all what you hope for as an investor? So, um, no, I was I was very uh, excited to see the news and I'm excited to see how it plays out. And hopefully it plays out really well for some retail investors looking to get into the space. Yeah, completely agree. Look, that sort of expanded access and that sort of, I suppose, greater inclusivity point, Polly, that you made, I think... Uh, absolutely resonates. Jason, I guess it's not without risk, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, both Jonathan and Polly make a great point about access to private market investments, right? So the timing up at which companies have IPO'd or gone public has changed dramatically in the past 10 or 15 years. And there's a whole bunch of underlying reasons why, you know, zero interest rate environment and, you know, growth of supersized VC funds and the entry of, you know, Saudi and other sovereign investors into the space has really seen the ability for companies to raise these late stage huge rounds stay private longer and you know there are are benefits to that as far as you know not sort of needing to be accountable to Wall Street quarterly earnings etc i mean one example you know google IPO'd four years after it was founded, and at the time it was valued at something like $23 billion. That was in 2004. Today, Alphabet, Google's parent company, is worth $1.3 trillion. So that upside, the delta between the two, was able to be captured by public market investors. It's very different than something like Uber or Stripe, which stayed public for a much longer period of time where the upside was largely captured by private market investors. I do think when it comes to regulation, from an ideological standpoint, you tend to have a continuum between people, regulators, politicians who think these investments are highly risky and retail investors need to be protected from this through some sort of uh, criteria about who has access. In the U.S. market, you have this scheme of you know, so-called accredited investors, uh, and there's a couple of different ways you sort of meet that threshold, and, and sort of only that group can have access to most private market investments. You know, in the other end of the continuum, uh, the idea 
that people, retail investors, should have a right to make these, and the appropriate way to manage or mitigate that risk is through information and disclosures. Uh, I'll admit I'm not super familiar with uh, the VCT um, structure. Something I do really like, based on my understanding from this conversation, is the diversification component to it, right? Most startups fail, and so the best way to mitigate risk as an investor is to make sure that you are invested in a broad basket of startups and diversify that risk across a portfolio. Yeah, and I guess it's like any other investment in that sense, right? Okay, I am going to move us on to our our next story. So, Jonathan, listen, congratulations, huge congratulations, and thanks again for uh, coming on to tell us about it. Our next story comes from The Verge with the headline, Apple Pay Later is finally launching. Um, so Apple is now finally launching Apple Pay Later, the company's take on the buy now, pay later, or BNPL business. The company has announced that users can use the service to apply for pay later loans of between $50 and $1,000, and then repay those loans through four payments over the course of six weeks with no interest or fees. Apple Pay Later exists within the Apple Wallet and is supposed to let you avoid paying the full price for a product right away. The service which Apple first announced during Worldwide Developers Conference in June last year has been in the works for quite a while. Not everyone can access the service, however. Apple says, Quote, randomly selected users will receive invites to obtain early access to Apple Pay Later, and the service is only available in the US and for online and in-app purchases on the most up-to-date versions of uh, iOS. Polly, I'll come to you first on, on this one. What was your reaction to this story? So I found it quite interesting, and I guess my my first thought of, around it was have they missed the BNPL buzz? You know, this is this feels like it's it's coming awfully late. And, you know, like the past two years have very been very much about, you know, buy now, pay later. And that was very trending both in the fintech world, I think, and as well in the consumer world as people were sort of learning at the services and using the products. But now I feel like, at least it feels like in, in how I sort of perceive everything that by now pay later is kind of dying down a little bit it's not gone away it's still very popular but it's just not got that hype and that buzz that it had and so for a big company like apple to be launching their own by now pay later business now just seems a bit odd and i think wasn't it first announced back in july 2022 so it's taken nearly a year to get it up and running and it it's not even fully up and running if what I understand from Yuncha and they're only rolling it out to a few different people. So it's just, it's just very interesting. It's something that we've been speaking a lot about at the Fintech Times about this sort of, you know, the buy now, pay later and how things have been evolving with that. And it was just very interesting. But then of course, Apple being Apple and being very popular uh, with consumers, I wonder what this effect will have on the buy now, pay later sector, because I expect it will get a lot of usage and Apple has a habit of taking over any industry that it it goes into. So it should be very, um, very interesting to see. I mean, you know, I, I use Apple Pay all the time just purely out of convenience. So to have Apple Pay later just there as a convenient thing, I'll probably end up using it just because it's there. But then I think we also need to think about how Buy Now Pay Later as well has evolved because I think it's moved slightly into what people were hoping by now pay later would be used for, which is like, you know, the big purchases like the the TVs and other sort of things that perhaps cost a little bit more than the average person might have sat in their bank account. And now it's kind of 
more just general like little stuff you know like you can buy your groceries with buy now pay later services which I always think is a bit strange but I guess you know if that's how you manage money that's fine so it's just one of those it's still a bit of a sticky subject I think in terms of how people use buy now pay later and then if Apple enters the space with something very convenient that I imagine a lot of people will use is that going to make things worse from the consumer standpoint like is that something that we need to be concerned about and I'd I'd say it's kind of 50-50 because as with any every financial product every financial service it's all about how you use it right if you use it well and you use it correctly you get fantastic benefits from it and you get to use that product and it's all great but if you start using it wrong that's when the issues come in so it's 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 one of those things that I think has to be managed carefully by Apple and I do hope that there will be you know, some oversight in that regard, especially perhaps for like younger people, anyone who has an iPhone who is on the younger end of the scale and perhaps doesn't understand things as much as other people might. But yeah, it's all, it's one of those things that I'm almost like sat back and just going to watch what happens and, and see how, how it impacts everything. Cause it's, it's just a really interesting time to be launching such a product. Well, it's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because along with obviously sort of the launch of this, which we're saying is taking a little bit longer than it might have done. The other thing I think that's probably taking a little bit longer than it might have done is the sort of regulation, right, in this space. And I think you make a, a really good point about consumer protections. Of course, there was a lot of publicity about Klarna partnering with the likes of um, Deliveroo, like you said, those types of like more sort of day-to-day purchases rather than the bigger things and not all of that was positive. On the adoption point, Jason, I think one of the really interesting things is how the Apple Pay Later actually lives in the wallet rather than on the, the the merchant checkout. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I imagine most listeners are pretty familiar with the call it like classic uh, pay in for BNPL implementation, right? So, the sort of killer use case that really blew up for Klarna and Afterpay and and Affirm and, and these various companies was distribution through. Uh, e-commerce merchants at the point of checkout. So you're on, you know, ASOS's website or H&M or whatever, and oh, like my purchase is a hundred quid or four payments of twenty-five. Great. Apple's uh, mechanics and UX are quite a bit different. So to your point, Ross, first. Uh, users need to kind of set up and apply in advance through the Apple Wallet, uh, and that actually will include a soft credit check. So not all pay-in-for uh, products in the U.S., actually very few of them currently do that. So there's some additional underwriting here uh, that is somewhat unique to Apple. Mark Gurman uh, at Bloomberg also reported that they will draw on your Apple sort of previous payment history, right? So if you're using other Apple subscriptions or products, et cetera, they can pull in that data as part of how they're underwriting you. Uh, and then once you've applied for an amount, I believe it's between $50 and $1,000, you'll be able to use that through Apple Pay either at physical merchants, bricks and mortar, or uh, through uh, online transactions paid for through Apple Pay. I mean, a couple things I'm curious to see. One, you know, given the uh, need to sort of do this ahead of time, how does that impact sort of conversion rate? How many people are signing up? Who is signing up? Um, and something else that I think is interesting, you know, to point out, you know, a lot of the narrative around BNPL 
broadly, not necessarily specific to Apple, has been that it's sort of a preferred credit option for Gen Z, who's like historically averse to credit cards. Uh, the data don't actually bear that out at all, at least not in the U.S. market where this product is launching. In fact, frequent users of Pay and For BNPL uh, are more likely to have a traditional credit product like a credit card, a car loan, a mortgage, student loan, etc. And uh, to Polly's consumer uh, protection piece, BNPL users tend to carry higher levels of debt and have fewer savings, more likely to use overdraft, uh, more likely to use payday loans, auto title loans, etc. So I'm curious to see, as Apple rolls this out, how are they underwriting it, what consumers are applying, what consumers are being approved, and sort of what is the performance of that credit portfolio look like. I mean, Apple, remember, is stepping in uh, and taking on most of the functions of this product itself. For the Apple Card, partner Goldman Sachs handled the servicing, collections, etc. Here, Apple's going to be doing that. And, you know, Apple's a lovely brand, but what happens if I, you know, default on paying back my whatever, my Tesco bill, my Walmart bill? Uh, Apple has no experience doing that kind of servicing in collections. So it'll be interesting to see how they navigate that from a customer service standpoint, as well as a regulatory compliance standpoint. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's 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 a difficult one, isn't it? Because obviously it's hard to keep the sort of, I suppose, uh, the brand affection that they have when you're engaging with people in those very difficult um, circumstances. I found the point that you made, Jason, about um, the people that tend to use, say, paying for type products actually being heavily indebted elsewhere really interesting because the, I suppose the narrative, as you said, the common narrative is, oh, no, they're actually using it instead of credit cards. So interesting to get that comparison. Interesting as well what you were saying about Actually, this is less aligned as a product to those types of pay-and-for options, maybe a little bit more aligned to something like a Monzo Flex. And I wonder if, actually, this is then going to have less impact on the the Klarna's and those other, you know, a firm, those other types of providers than it might have done because people will naturally treat them as different types of products. Jonathan, what do you think about um, the impact that this is going to have on that sort of buy-now-pay-later sector? Yeah, I guess my, my feeling at the buy now pay later product in the UK market is, as Polly said, so synonymous with day-to-day uh, -day purchase. And I'm trying to sort of attach that with the Apple Pay product. Um, and I just feel like it's a, a really hard connection to to make. And I, I don't know whether it's just my opinion or whether that's the broad demographic um, opinion on on this, but I feel like they'll have a better sort of landing if they do open in the UK with focusing on those like larger purchase options. And I think they'll build ultimately better reputation with the customers that uh, end up using this product. I just simply can't see, you know, my use case of Apple Pay is nipping in and out of the tube and like buying a coffee and things like this. And I can't, I just can't see that stretch to, to buy now, pay later. But hey, uh, we've seen stranger things and um, be interested to see how it plays out. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I definitely want to uh, keep an eye on what, whatever Apple tends to do. They tend to do it well, so uh, we'll just have to see. All right, so we are just going to take a quick pause here, and we'll be back with you very shortly.
This episode is sponsored by Blinkist. The Blinkist app offers distilled content from over 5,000 non-fiction books and podcasts in an audio-first experience, so you can easily fit them into your day, letting you learn new things all on the go. Discover friend of the show Dan McCrum's Money Men, his journey to exposing the Wirecard scandal, all within 20 minutes. Sounds pretty good, huh? Well, right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for you, our FinTech Insider listeners. Go to Blinkist.com forward slash fintech to start your seven-day free trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. And now for a limited time, you can even use Blinkist Connect to share your premium account with a friend or partner and get two premium subscriptions for the price of one. That's Blinkist, spelt B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com forward slash fintech. Okay, welcome back to the show. Now, before we get on to the second half of today's news, this is a reminder to go check out the latest episode of our FinTech Insider Insight show, Are SMEs Being Served Globally? That's the question that Benjamin Ensor is asking in this week's show with experts from Sao Paulo, Dubai, Miami, and London. So go check that out wherever you get this podcast and let us know what you think. Now, let's get into our next story. So this story comes from CNBC. American micro-investing platform Acorns has acquired GoHenry, a digital banking startup focused on educating kids about money. The company told CNBC exclusively that it agreed an all-stock deal with GoHenry that will see the firm become a wholly owned subsidiary of Acorns, with employees and backers of GoHenry rolling over their equity. Founded in 2012, GoHenry offers a spending card for children aged 6 to 18, linked to an accompanying money management app. Parents can track their kids' transactions in real time and set spending limits or saving goals. Acorn looked at, quote, more than 100 deals globally before landing on GoHenry, with the fintech's $55 million cash infusion buyout of rival firm PixPay in France making the deal more attractive. Now, to find out more, we reached out to Louise Hill, co-founder and chief operating officer at GoHenry, to ask what this means for the company going forward. Our mission at GoHenry has always been to make every kid and teen smart with money. Our new alignment with Acorns will enable us to deliver financial wellness to the whole family, not just kids and teens, and provide members with an opportunity to manage money through all of life's many stages. The two companies together have nearly 6 million members across five different countries, and that means that it extends our international reach by immediately creating a global company with substantial scale across the US, the UK and the EU. And most importantly, it allows us the unique strategic opportunity to deliver financial wellness to everyone from age 6 to 106. If you look at what's going on in the world, there's never been a greater need for easy-to-use products that simplify savings and encourage everyone from kids to adults to build strong money habits by building confidence and practical experience in the ability to save, invest and budget. And that means we're playing into a really key time for expansion and development. In the US, GoHenry will become GoHenry by Acorns. And in the UK and Europe, we'll continue to operate under our GoHenry and PixPay brands, respectively. It's very much business as usual for our teams and our customers but with the added opportunities and the global reach that this new strategic alignment with Acorns will bring. Yeah, it was a really, really interesting story, this one, and one that uh, definitely caught my eye. Jonathan, I know uh, 
Go Henry raised on Crowdcube in 2019. So uh, one I'm sure that you were interested in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we worked with Louise and Alex and the team for a number of years. We actually first raised them back in 2016. Um, we raised four million pounds from 2,200 investors at a pre-money of 13 million. We subsequently worked with them in 2017, 2018, and 2019. So we've raised over 12 million for GoHenry from over six and a half thousand uh, retail investors alongside institutional investors as well. It's been a great, great journey for lots of members of Crowdcube, all that from all rounds are receiving uh, positive multiples on their investment. There is more details to follow on that because the deal is still in closing. However, shareholders of, of the business have been notified of, of the share price and appropriate sort of process that's going through as part of the deal. But we, we, we have been um, sort of restricted in a lot of the information we can share on the deal at this stage. But for us, it's a culmination, really. I mean, 2015, 2016 was where we saw a lot of the kind of crowdfunded fintech deals sort of burst onto the scene. It was the time at which we were, you know, slightly earlier than that, but the Monzo and the Revolut type rounds and fintech exploded for crowdfunded businesses. Moneybox followed, Nutmeg followed. And it's it's really great to see that full cycle come through. And, um, you know, really, really pleased for the team, to be honest with you. So um, many more, many more examples to come, we hope. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you're right. Look, a big success story. I think, you know, the attractiveness of the business, I think probably underscored by the fact that Acorns looked at, you know, what they said was more than 100 deals globally before settling on GoHenry. So I think that tells you everything you need to know. But yeah, huge, huge outcome for the team. Jason, what was your uh, what was your reaction to this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a sign of things to come in the sense that I would anticipate seeing more, you know, fintech fintech or fintech bank M&A activity in, you know, the next 6, 12 months, you know, particularly as, you know, some startups presumably are staring down a shrinking runway and potentially looking for exit options. Uh, I mean, I do think the the segment that both companies are serving, um, you know, particularly like the uh, kids or the younger segment is a bit challenging to monetize. You know, whether it's a, a you know a neobank type product or an investing product, given the relatively low amounts uh, on interchange or an asset under management model, it, it's challenging to generate revenue, and that's why sort of the subscription approach makes sense. I think the piece I'll be interested to watch uh, on a go forward basis is you know does that subscription cost form a barrier, particularly in in the US market where consumers are, you know, accustomed and allergic to paying uh, paying for these kind of things. You know, the, the free checking account reigns supreme. The other piece I'll be watching is, you know, are uh, are incumbents or competitors uh, looking to move into that space, right? So Cash App, um, which is you know, biggest market is the U.S., but exists in the U.K., Ireland, and, and you know other countries as well. Has a family account option, including investing options, um, or do you see an incumbent like a you know like a Chase, Bank of America, etc., try to push into that space, offering you know offering a free product? So those are kind of the areas that that I'm most uh, interested to see play out. Yeah, 
No, super, super interesting. And I think um, I found the point about financial wellness, like in a broader context, interesting, right? Because part of the reason that this story caught my eye is on first glance, it doesn't necessarily feel like a, a natural fit, right? Acorns taking over Go Henry. But I, I was interested um, in the point that um, Louise made about Polly, that, that, that idea of being able to sort of serve a really, really wide demographic. I, I think she said through from the age of six right through to 106. So interesting opportunities there in a, in a financial wellness, financial well-being context. Yeah, absolutely. And to be honest with you, I am a huge fan of Go Henry and everything that they're doing. And I wish it was around when I was a kid because I think financial education is just so important and you've got to start it as soon as possible, you know, and you've got to get these kids understanding their finances, understanding money, and then that helps them grow up to be, you know, an adult with money coming in and understanding how to use it and how to make the best of it. And I think anything that is about helping that financial education, whether it's for children or like Lou's just saying, you know, for older um, people, because I think there's still so many adults who don't really understand money very much so like my partner just hates anything to do with money which is really funny when you consider what my job is but we we can't we like it's it's a very big thing to try and tackle especially from your own perspective and often you're navigating it by yourself or so to have these tools and have these products and services to help you along the way I think is fantastic and I guess if we're looking as well kind of on the investment side of things, I think there is a bit of a, a gap in terms of financial education about investing, I think, for both when we're looking at children and for adults. But at the same time, I think there is a, a big popularity in investing currently um, and having your own investment account and how you can raise your money. And because I all my TikToks, which is going to make me sound really dumb but um all of my tiktoks are about investing currently and i know my algorithm is going to be slightly skewed because of the nature of my job but every time i open tiktok there is always someone there telling me i need to be investing in this or i need to be doing this and who are they you know who are these people i don't know who they are maybe they're like big influencers in the fintech world or they're just some guy who has had some luck in investing and thinks he can impart his wisdom on the masses whereas if you have actual physical investing advice coming from you know a, a well-respected company that's helping people from early stages i think that's going to be so important moving forward because obviously these kids are going on tiktok seeing all this investment about how to make a, a quick buck and thinking oh yeah that sounds good and then maybe not getting the returns that they expected you know and i think it's it's just so important to help people understand how to use their money and how to manage their money and it's just going to make well-rounded adults and happier adults I think for certain because it's just it's just one of those things that everyone has to do at some point everyone has to handle money at some point in their lives so why not make it easier from the get-go yeah I I completely agree with everything that you've just said and I think actually there's a bigger point isn't there about the role of social media we saw it with SVB we saw it with um you know Credit Suisse and and and, and others and the role that that can play in driving bank runs or like you said sort of consumers doing things that they don't necessarily under understand and not getting to to great outcomes but i think your point about um the financial education piece i just think is so critical and jonathan it does feel like actually there's a an education piece that sits across both the 
the index funds on the Acorn side and actually helping people better understand finances and giving them the tools that they need to make better decisions as they grow up. That sits across both here, right? Totally agree. Yeah, I agree with both of those points from from Jason and Polly. And I think the thing that jumps out to me on this and talking to Jason's point about M&A and future-proofing some of these, uh, the, the acquiring companies' business models, right, to feed into, you know, their later stage products to cross-sell into other offers that they have. I, I always think back to, I don't know if anyone else in sort of mid-30s listening to this podcast, the student rail card offered by NatWest, um, because I'm still with NatWest. I have my, my wife and I have a joint account and a mortgage with NatWest, all because I got my, my um, under-18 travel card or whatever it was with them way back in the day. And it, it, it's, it's tools like that, I think, on the acquisition side that are really interesting here. And for Acorns, clearly, to be able to sell into this future generation of GoHenry users is going to be um, a really big part of the deal. But then equally, like, I don't know how sticky current accounts are nowadays. I mean, there's lots of services, there's lots of optionality, there's lots of ways to to flip and 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 switch and change. And uh, maybe I'm just old school in the thinking that actually I really can't be bothered to change my current account. Um, and, and that's enough for me. But I think I think that's an interesting one. It bears a risk equally, and we, we need to be able to offer different options up to people. But I think that's an interesting part of the deal. Um, and um, yeah, sort of let's, let's see how it plays out. Yeah, absolutely. I think sort of well-defined opportunities, and hopefully they sort of land, um, but definitely one to keep an eye on. Okay, so now for the section of the show called Big Click Energy, a quick fire roundup of some more clickworthy news this week. So just one from me this week. Uh, it comes from New York Magazine. Um, so LGBTQ plus fintech daylight is the subject of a damning article printed by New York Magazine, which is highlighting lawsuits from former staff members. The article lists a number of alarming allegations against the company's CEO, Rob Curtis, corroborated by witness statements and recordings obtained by a New York Magazine writer. So the article alleges, among other things, fabrications of company figures, a takeover coup, inappropriate behavior and statements from Curtis towards staff and an unhealthy corporate culture. The concluding paragraph states, quote, what transpired at daylight shows how the guise of a noble corporate mission can provide cover for a CEO behaving badly. So daylight announced a series A raise in November, 2022 to launch a subscription plan for LGBTQ plus family planning. Now, for me, I think the point about it being a bank targeted towards LGBTQ plus probably feels overemphasized here. I think you'll get bad actors everywhere. So I, I wouldn't see this as being unique, but I think maybe perhaps the point about not being blinded by a noble mission is relevant. I would though hope that that would be the case anyway, right? And that these businesses would naturally be subject to the the same controls uh, as any other, but obviously not nice for the people that have gone through any of those poor experiences. So yeah, definitely worthy of a call out. Okay, so let's bring everybody back for the final section of the show, which as ever looks at a more lighthearted story from last week. This one comes from The Guardian with a headline, Twitter changes its logo to Dogecoin cryptocurrency image in apparent late April Fool's Day gag. Uh, so Twitter changed its iconic and obviously very recognizable Bluebird logo to mimic the lo logo of a popular cryptocurrency an image of a dog that featured in viral memes. 
It is speculated that was a late April Fool's Day gag from the company's billionaire owner, Elon Musk. Last Monday, users noted that the Bluebird logo on Twitter's homepage and loading screen had been replaced with the Shiba Inu image associated with the Dogecoin meme coin cryptocurrency. The official Dogecoin account tweeted, quote, very currency, wow, much coin, how money, so crypto, in response. It came just days after Musk petitioned a court in the US to dismiss a lawsuit filed against him by Dogecoin investors for $258 billion over an alleged pyramid scheme. Reuters reported in June last year that according to the complaint, the plaintiffs claim Musk knew that since 2019, the cryptocurrency had no value, but promoted Dogecoin to profit from its trading. It's lighthearted. I mean, it's a bizarre one, this one. Jason, maybe I'll come to you first and get your thoughts. I mean, I, uh, I'll i admit I am a fairly avid user of Twitter. I deleted it when I was on vacation, but then there was some kind of weird banking crisis and I had to like reinstall it to, you know, tweet. Um, that said, I, I, I find Elon exhausting, you know. It, I'm it, with it, you there. It, there's like a overlap of the mentality with Trump, not that we want to go into the political realm, but it's just like, it's just very, very tiring. And it feels like 90% of it either isn't serious or should not be taken seriously. And I think particularly given uh, Musk and Twitter's stated ambition of moving into the sort of banking financial services realm, it's like, you know, being somebody's bank or payment provider is not a joke, and you probably want the person or the company offering those products and services to take their job and take their brand seriously, and he just clearly doesn't, which makes it hard for me to you know, take their uh, goal of providing banking services or payment services seriously. It's just, uh, to, to quote a recent episode of uh, Succession, not a serious person. I mean, uh, Jason, we covered uh, the role of social media banks, didn't we, in a, a previous Insights uh, episode, and I definitely left my uh, I left everything on the table in terms of what I felt about it, <laughs> um, particularly in relation to Elon. Uh, Jonathan, what was what was your reaction to this one? Yeah, I mean, he certainly knows how to ruffle feathers, doesn't he? Um, yeah, totally agree with Jason. I think it's um, it's borderline sort of bonkers, really, isn't it? And um, I. I, I almost feel a little bit for the employees of Twitter, like looking at what they've gone through since the acquisition and the, the, how erratic he's behaved and the credibility that that gives and confidence that that gives to the employees of Twitter. For me, I would be like pretty worried about, you know, my, my job and the direction of the business and, and the fact that that doesn't feel like it's aligned and there's a clear sort of, vision and mission to what they're looking to achieve. It's just more of a more of a little play toy for him on the side to see whatever he fancies doing that day. Uh am I allowed to use the word bonkers? It feels very bonkers. And um can't say it's not fun to watch, but um it's it's sad to see. Yeah. You're allowed, you're encouraged. Polly, last last word to you on this. It's so funny because literally I'm not really on Twitter anymore. I still have an account but I just I very rarely use it for no reason specifically, just I very rarely use it. Um, and last night, literally just before I, I found out what we we're going to be discussing on the podcast today, my partner just comes over to me and goes, is that Doge on the Twitter logo? What What's up with that? So I just find it was it, quite a funny coincidence. 
But yeah, I mean, uh, there's not much more I can say that Jason and Jonathan have already said and yourself, Ross. I mean, it just it's just odd at this point. Um, and, you know, everything I'm learning about Twitter and Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter ain't great. Uh, he's lost, I think, whatever coolness he had. Because I think, you know, a couple of years ago, Elon Musk was a pretty cool dude, right? And, you know, he was like trying to be the the Tony Stark of the real world. And now I, I don't know if uh, that's on his journey. Um, you know, and it's... Everyone's saying it's an April Fool's joke. And it's like, is it though? Because I don't know if there's ever an official line come out about it being an April Fool's joke. And if it is, it's not very funny. Um, I would love to know, genuinely, I would just love to be on a fly on a wall in that meeting, right? Of who, uh, e- assumably Elon Musk or whoever going, right, we want to make the logo Doge. I just, I'd, l- I'd give anything to sit in on that meeting and just to hear what was said in response. I think, I think to Jonathan's earlier point, absolutely bonkers, right? Yeah, literally, I can't, I can't say anything other than, than that. It, yeah, I agree entirely. Just a bit bonkers. As part of the uh, the Insight Show that um, I mentioned earlier that Jason and I um, recorded previously, we asked our FinTech Insider audience on Twitter and LinkedIn at the time, right, whether they would bank with Twitter. We actually received a pretty impressive 1,200 votes. The yes was 17%, the no was 83%. And I'd be willing to bet that off the back of this story, I think that no would actually be even higher. So um, maybe we'll run that poll again and we'll see. Um all right, look, that wraps up this week's new show. Um, thank you so much to our wonderful guests. Um, let's sort of run around the virtual room. Just tell us where people can find out a little bit more about you. Um, Jonathan, let's start with you. Yeah, thanks for having me again, Ross. Um, you can get me best on LinkedIn, Jonathan Keeling, Crowdcube. Excellent. Jason, how about you? Uh, fintechbusinessweekly.com or I guess uh, at MakulaJA on Twitter for as long as it's still around. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and Polly Jean, what about you? Sure, you can uh, find me on the fintechtimes.com. As I said, I don't really use Twitter that much anymore, but if you want to see my previous tweets, it's at opollyjean. Um, or you can find me on LinkedIn, Polly Jean Harrison. Excellent. And as for me, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ross Gallagher 7 And thank you so much for listening. Do join the conversation on social media or email podcast at 11fs.com. Thanks very much and goodbye. Mm-hmm.